take a deep breath Take the higher road That's what they always say As if they know the way They won't take it from me But don't ever doubt yourself Cause life ain't just a dream You make your own So kick and scream The people will like With a never ending force You never had the chance So what you waiting for The day has come my friend Cause this is war YouTube is now labeling content related to healthcare topics to let audiences know whether the content creator is from a national health authority. How will this impact the spread of medical information and where do we go from here? Welcome to Nurses Out Loud. I'm your host, Nurse April. As a quick reminder, you can listen to Nurses Out Loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time and again at 10 p.m. If you go to the website, you can see all the platforms available for you to hear our show, which goes to podcast one to two days after the show airs. Get to know more about each of the nurses by going to the website. Look up the Nurses Out Loud show and you'll see our profiles. You can send each of us an email with questions, comments, and suggestions for show topics, and we would love to hear from you. Now, let's talk about what's going on with YouTube. I want to kind of start with a little bit of background about me. So as a very young child, I remember having a conversation with my dad and asking him why. I don't know what we were talking about, but I remember asking him why because of his response. He started laughing and he said, that must be your favorite word. And I hadn't realized it before, but I guess I did ask that a lot, which is funny because I still do. I am a very visual learner. So if you show me something I'll remember it far longer than if you just tell me or if I just read it. So when YouTube came around, I was like so excited. It was the best invention on the internet for me. It gave me this endless visual library answering every why question I could think of. Not only that, but it came from everyday people, which is extremely important because I am not a respecter of status. I actually believe the most knowledgeable and capable people are the ones at the bottom at least the ones that society would consider at the bottom. So they're experts at what they do because they love it. And so they choose to learn as much as they can to be considered an expert. Now, with this whole YouTube censorship era that we've gone into, I, you know, of course, everyone I'm sure has noticed a change on the platform. The fact that they are curating uh, the uh, content that they give you even if you put in a search, they're going to curate the content based on what's most popular. But they're also looking at what are some of your typical um, people that you listen to? What are some of the people you're subscribed to? Which is good. I mean, that's what you want. But at the same time, they kind of know more about us than we would be comfortable with. And so they're curating the information to manipulate us as well. So now if you recall, me, someone who's always asking why. I ask this question to doctors, nurses, engineers, chefs, because I don't care who you are, musicians, whatever. I'm going to ask you why about something at some point. And the vast majority of the time I've noticed that when I ask doctors a question, they usually say, I don't know, which is quite frustrating for someone like me because I 
you, I expect them to know a lot more than they do. Now, I learned in my 20s that most doctors don't know nearly as much as I once believed. So I did begin relying heavily on getting my answers from the internet, which I think a lot of people do. You, you get rushed through your doctor's appointments or you have a symptom, you have an ache or pain or you know something that you're curious about. And so most people do go to the internet to find answers to their questions. And that is something that most physicians hate. And, and, and it's understandable because people don't necessarily know how to filter good information from bad information. But I think that it was always a really important way to open the door to give people power over their health, power to make informed decisions, to, to dig in and do more research. Because if, if your physician or your nurse or your provider, whatever provider they are, if they make a suggestion to you, oftentimes they don't have a whole lot of time to really dig in and tell you the risks and benefits. And if this is all about informed consent, then how are you going to really give in informed consent if you really don't have all of the information you need to make an educated choice? So for me, I love people going on the internet. I often, when I'm introducing myself to a patient before we go back for surgery, I'll ask them, did you go online and look up the procedure beforehand? Most of the time they say no. And that's kind of disappointing. People are like, no, I didn't want to be afraid. I didn't want to, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what I was going to see or, oh, I didn't want to see it because I would be grossed out. And I get it. You know, people are nervous before surgery. They're already afraid of all of the things that could happen. But I, me personally, I want to know as much as I can before I do something. And so a lot of times I would actually pull up videos, YouTube videos on my phone in pre-op to show patients like, this is what we're going to be doing for you, especially if it was a robotic procedure. Like people hear about the robot, but they don't know what that means. They don't even know that, you know, how is it, how is a robot going to do surgery on me? So I like to really educate people about this is what the robot is. This is how it works. This is my role in your surgery and why I'm here. You know, just like to answer questions because that's what we do as nurses. We like to teach. So the internet has been a great source of information. And I hear the argument about all oh, misinformation, disinformation, and people are getting bad information. Yeah, but that's our job as healthcare providers is to help filter out the bad and help patients to know how to make better judgments on what they're seeing. We're not doing our job. If people are looking up things like, okay, let me give you an example. I had a student tell me that women, that, that we are now in a position scientifically where women can have babies without men. They don't need men. She saw it on TikTok and she saw how a, there are stem cells that a woman can get from herself and then this, they, she can somehow get artificially inseminated with her own cells and they are able to create a baby from this. And so we don't need men anymore. Now, here I am trying to teach this high schooler all about how to filter out good information from bad information. I don't think that we should get rid of that on the internet. I think we have to teach people how to be more discerning. Now, when the internet first came out, when I was younger, which dates me, that's fine. But when I was younger, I remember our teachers telling us, hey, 
Be careful about the information that you see on the internet. And actually, we weren't even allowed to cite any information that came off the internet. Those were not considered credible sources because we were told that anyone can make a website and post information and it hasn't been validated and it hasn't been um, it hasn't been confirmed to be true or not. So since you can't know if it's true or if it's fake, you cannot use it in your research papers. So that was kind of frustrating, but at the same time, it was like understandable. That was how we were taught and that's what we were trained. So when I went to nursing school, they spent the next four years of college teaching us about what are sources that are trusted and reliable. Which areas are you allowed to go and look for research and, and how do you know when it's a good paper or it's a bad paper, a good source or a bad source? So they were rewarding this behavior of using specific sources by you getting a good grade. So if you had a research paper or if you had to do a care plan and you had to cite your sources and if your sources came from, air quotes here, credible sources or trusted sources, then you got a passing grade. But if your sources weren't considered credible by the, I guess, the teaching establishment, then you did not get a good grade. So that's how you start to control behaviors psychologically, you know, just kind of when you're trying to train your children up or you train up a puppy and you give them rewards when they do good. And then you take things away when they don't do good. It's because you're trying to teach them to behave in a certain way. So this training um, that we do, and then it's, it's across industries. It's not just healthcare. It's, it's, it's everywhere. It's in all things, right? We want to train people to behave in a certain way in society. And, and that has its benefits, of course. I mean, even the Bible says, train a child up in the way that they should go. So when they get older, they will not depart from it. That is important. However, in healthcare, and at the time I didn't realize this, so this is just a new epiphany that I'm coming up with here. When you are, you, you have a student and you are growing them up into a position that they're going to take on professionally, and you have four years with them, or in the case of a physician where you may have 12, 16 to 20 years of really programming them to think in a certain way. The only way, for instance, in nursing school that you can even graduate is if you pass all your classes with at least a B or more. If you get below a B, you can't, at least in my university, you could not, that, that was considered failing and you weren't able to continue on in the program. So what happens is, you're getting all of these assignments. It's a very, very intense and rigorous program. And you're basically being trained over and over and over what's acceptable and what's not. So these are acceptable sources, the British, British Medical Journal or JAMA, or you know these very well-known, long-standing long standing, um, sources of medical information. That's where you are supposed to get your information from. Well, now, um, when we go into practice and work as nurses and doctors, what do we do? Well, we rely on those sources. We trust those sources 
to give us the information that we have. And we actually, what happens is we start to trust those sources and therefore we don't vet them as much as we would say a source that is coming from somewhere that's unknown. So we become far less vigilant because they're trusted sources. Whatever they say must be true because those working for those organizations have done the vetting in advance on our behalf. We don't have time to do all the vetting that they do. So we, we read what they have to say. And, and matter of fact, a lot of times you don't even read the full journal article. You'll just read the summary. And whatever the summary says, you take that and you move and you go and you make decisions and use that to support your choices, okay? Well, I believe that in a lot of ways, the government has decided, okay, this group of people, these healthcare providers have been well indoctrinated. They know what they're allowed to say, what they're not allowed to say. They know that they will be ridiculed. They will be shamed. They will be humiliated if they cite sources from places that are less reputable. So in order to protect themselves within the community, the scientific community, they'll be careful. The general public, on the other hand, they're the ones that we have to be concerned about. They're the ones we have to protect because they didn't get the same level of indoctrination that this other group did. So in order for us, because the internet now is just this wide open space where people have access to information from anywhere, in order for us to control the masses and the information that is being relayed, we're going to have to curate the search results, which is what we all know is happening, of course, on Google, if you still use Google, I use DuckDuckGo, and even that's being curated. Like, there's really no safe space anymore where you are free from bias. So YouTube, of course, Twitter, we know if, if anybody's been paying attention to all the Twitter files, which I'm sure everyone, at least listening to this radio show, are aware of the Twitter drops that have been coming out from Elon Musk. But the FBI and the United States government actually had an open door to be able to go onto Twitter and filter out content that they deemed as misinformation. Our government has been censoring free speech, specifically also related to COVID and medical information that was being put out there. They were censoring information being put out by scientists and doctors and nurses, people who actually have been trained to be able to evaluate and make, you would think, educated, um, this have educated discussions. They were filtering that. And you know, that's, that the craziest thing is the people who were chosen to filter weren't even healthcare providers. How were they going to tell the healthcare providers that what they were saying wasn't valid or reliable? Well, the way they did that is that they were given a set of rules by these organizations like the National Institute of Health or the CDC or the World Health Organization. So they came up with these guidelines and said, this is what's true, this is what's not. Now, plenty of people have had these discussions. I've heard them a lot about um, how important it is in science to be able to have open discussions. 
you can't science is all about putting forth your hypothesis and then having it challenged because how else are you going to find out that the earth really isn't flat it's round unless you have people who are willing to to openly challenge people on their ideas and hypotheses so that's very very important what we know now in healthcare will be completely different in in 10 years in less than 10 years and next year it'll be different as more evidence comes out because we have to be constantly asking why to think that we have all the answers already is foolish because we don't we're not even close we only know as much as the tools we have to be able to measure and see things one of the things that i was asking uh my husband recently is has have you ever considered that we think about okay the smallest particle is the electron right so we have you know these very small particles that is what determines the content of everything that we see go, going all the way down to that level of how many electrons are orbiting around the electrons and the neutrons and i said but what if it's there what if that is still not the smallest what if there's something even smaller that we just haven't been able to see yet because we don't have a tool that's developed to see it and he told me that 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 is the case actually that as they have um created um stronger even like for instance the microscopes we can see farther into the universe and we know more about the universe than we did before because our technology has enhanced so to think that what we know right now in healthcare is the end all be all and that the experts who are curating all of the information and content that is allowed to be disseminated onto the internet to the masses is the end all be all is foolish like people this is going to cause people to die there was a time when they thought bloodletting was the answer to a lot of diseases and now we know it wasn't what if they stopped in that moment and thought that in their arrogance they had found the solution and there was no need to dig any further there was no need to be challenged and that's my concern about this new youtube policy so i'm going to read a little part of their youtube policy and uh let you decide what you think so first of all let me just say that i hate those youtube labels whenever you see someone does a video on covid and then they put that little you know covid-19 to learn more click here and and the and all it does is it sends you to the government website that tells you where you can go to get a vaccine it's absolutely ridiculous like they actually aren't teaching you any more they aren't putting things into context the way they claim they are they just slap that label up there and i think it's more so to control people who would be put off by that label but for those of us who see that label and say okay obviously they have something to say and the youtube lords are trying to censor them and that's their way of censoring them as long as they're still falling within the guidelines then you know it's definitely worth digging in and seeing what they have to say like i hate those labels but anyway so when i saw this new label it's this like light blue if you haven't seen it yet it's the sky blue label which you know we think blue and we think peaceful and it makes us feel safe okay so of course they picked that color on purpose and so it is it's this blue label it's right under the the um thumbnail picture of the video and what it says is in quote I'm just quoting it it says from a national health authority and then below that it says 
Learn how health sources are defined by the World Health Organization. Okay, so I click on it and look at the policy. And here's what it said, like in the first you know, few lines or whatever. It says, at YouTube, we're committed to connecting you with health content from authoritative sources to help you stay informed and live your healthiest life. We've developed several features to give you more context on the health content you find on YouTube. The features below may not be available in all countries, regions, and languages. We're working to bring those features to more countries, regions, and languages. Information panels providing health source context. When you watch a YouTube video on a health-related topic, you may notice an information panel providing context on the source underneath the video. This panel is meant to give you more info to help you better understand the sources of health content that you find and watch on YouTube. To identify eligible health sources for this feature, we started in the U.S. with a set of principles and definitions developed by a panel of experts convened by the National Academy of Medicine and reviewed by the American Public Health Association. These foundational principles were published in a paper called Identifying Credible Sources of Health Information in Social Media, Principles and Attributes, end quote. Okay, it went on and on, and it talked about how you can apply to be able to get this label on your videos. But right there, of course, you lost me. You lost me already when you started labeling and listing the sources that you decided that you were going to go to your panel of experts, your panel of experts are not trusted health sources by all healthcare providers. Those of us who know do not trust those sources. But the people that you've done such a great job of, of gaslighting, they do still trust those sources. And that's where the problem comes in because now they're going to start accepting that the information that comes from these content creators is gospel. I wonder who holds the liability in cases where patients and, the, and just the community in general goes to find information from a trusted health source. They follow the guidance and it causes them to get injured. Because we know that the for instance, if we were thinking of vaccine companies, we know that they have immunity, so you can't go there. Who else has immunity? Oh, the government. I mean, trying to sue the government, that's like a, a, very, a very difficult and, and oftentimes huge waste of time and money. So who's going to be held responsible when the information that's being disseminated is found to be untrue? Or will they just hide it? tuck it away and delete it and make edits and change it because they know that most people won't take the time to discover that it has been changed. It's a shame and it's suspicious. So let me tell you, I'm going to read a quick scripture from the Bible. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was afflicted with a disease in his feet. Though his disease was severe, even in his illness, he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from the physicians. Then in the 41st year of his reign, Asa died and rested with his ancestors. Second Chronicles 
So I read that because when I came across that scripture, this was last year, maybe a year and a half ago. I had read it before, but it didn't stand out until everything that's been going on. I was like, wow, look at that. That's exactly what people are doing now. They're not seeking the Lord first to say, God, is this safe? Is this for me? Because I promise you, if people asked and prayed about this whole situation first, then they would not have gone and gotten this injection. Because this has hurt a lot of people. It was not for people to do, but they trusted their physicians. And that's exactly what our government wanted. Our government wanted us to trust the healthcare providers without people realizing the healthcare providers had a gun at their back. We've been programmed. Now, let's talk about something that other people who aren't in healthcare may not realize. It's time and this is While many things we hear are lies, we know one thing is true. Viruses exist and people get sick. Look, there's no guaranteed way to keep from getting sick, but there is a way to reduce your chances. Cofix RX, the original povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray that you hear Dr. McCullough talking about, provides an additional invisible layer of protection from colds, flu, coronaviruses, and more. Click the banner ad on americaoutloud.com and use promo code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Stay protected with Cofix RX. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day, yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Now the spirit of American liberty and justice is woven into the soul of America out loud. Now we invite you friends to invest some of your time with our magnificent family of experts, their minds and voices. It's all back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. Welcome back. So as I was saying, I delivered my son it wasn't difficult to uh, deliver him because he was my fourth and he went right over to the warmer and there was a room full of people and I waited and finally the pediatrician wrapped him up and she brought him over to me and she unwrapped him a little bit and, sh- and she wanted to show me what they were convening about over at the warmer and she peels back the blanket and she shows me my son who has this mass over his left chest. And then she opens the blanket a little bit more and there's his arm and there are these um, lumps on his arm kind of look kind of like there were maybe some tumors or growths underneath his arm. And then I saw his hand 
And his left hand was very enlarged. It looked very, very swollen and kind of bluish in color. And I couldn't see all of his fingers, but my first thought that I, that I, that I had was that it looked like the show that I had watched on TV that, that was showing um, children who had the, it was like a, almost like a claw-like hand where they had macrodactyly, which means that they had very large fingers, but they only had two. So it kind of looked like a crab. And that's kind of what it looked like to me when she peeled back the blankets because she didn't fully like expose him. And then she covered him back up. And then she said, um, you know, his, he was having a hard time maintaining his oxygen and they wanted to keep an eye on him. So they were going to take him over to the NICU and just monitor him. And then they just whisked him away. And I was left to lay there and figure out what just happened. My practitioner was obviously shocked. Everyone was. And they were all looking through the records, trying to find records of the ultrasound because, you know, I had had that ultrasound just a few weeks prior to delivery. And I had mentioned that there was something abnormal. So they're looking for the ultrasound report that hadn't come back. And, but it was there on the day that I delivered and the ultrasound report came back. Now, when you have an ultrasound, maternal fetal medicine doctors, which are specialists, okay, they're specialists in high-risk pregnancies. They're the ones who read the ultrasound to tell you whether or not it was normal. And on my report, everything was normal. Now, I am not trained in reading ultrasounds. I have a very basic level of understanding of what I'm seeing, but, you know, I've seen enough to know, you know, what parts I'm looking at at that time. And I could see on the ultrasound when she was doing all of those measurements, I could see that she was measuring these, what looked like little like water balloons, little circles with an out, like the outer lining was a dark white color. And then the inside was black. So you know, some kind of fluid filled sacs and there were small ones and there were larger ones. And so that's what she was measuring that were over his heart because she was measuring these cysts, these micro and macro cysts that were over his left chest wall. So the specialist maternal fetal medicine doctor who had gone to school for umpteen years, read that ultrasound and said that everything was normal. The sonographer knew everything wasn't normal. The nurse knew everything wasn't normal, but the doctor said everything was normal. So either he didn't read the ultrasound and just kind of stamped it and pushed it away, like uh, whatever, or he didn't know what he was looking at. I don't know. Either way, he was wrong. And now here we were in a situation where we, the doctor didn't know, the pediatrician didn't know what it was. The neonatologist, um, had to do research to try to figure out what it was. And when we actually had a chance to finally and go, go to the NICU and see him. Um, Cause I, I mean, come on, I'm a, I'm a new mom, I'm a nurse and I am not going to stay in this room for two hours of recovery while my baby's in the NICU and no one has any answers and no one knows what's going on. So luckily the nurse who was taking care of me was also a friend of mine. And so she just put me in a wheelchair and we, and she wheeled me right over to the NICU. And I'm looking at my baby in the warmer and I'm like, what are we going to do? And the neonatologist was very sweet. And she, she gave her 
theory as to what it was that he had, which she at the time said she believed that he had a lymphatic malformation, which, um, you know, wasn't something that she had seen before, but it was something that was in the medical literature. And I had even read about it in my studies because as a labor and delivery nurse, you have to do a, a course called neonatal resuscitation. And in that class, you learn about what they used to call a cystic hygroma, which can cause a blockage of the airway. So that's why we learn about that in that course. And it's basically where you have a lymphatic uh, vessel that swells so much with fluid that it can cause infection and it can cause um, a blockage of the airway, can cut off circulation, all kinds of things that it can do. And so that was kind of the going theory of what David had. While I was in the hospital, I never got any consultations with social work. I never got any um, any advice on what to do. I didn't. I never got any consults from specialists. I was left completely alone. So my profession has betrayed me personally on multiple occasions, and I'm not the only one who has experienced this. Because again, I will always say. To patients, please understand that we do know what it's like to be on the other side because providers are patients too. We know how bad it is. And so I was discharged with my child and I was left to fend for myself to figure it out. So I spent the next year battling to find answers, to find a provider who knew what they were talking about, who could take care of him, fighting with the insurance company, fighting with doctors, doctors who wanted to practice on him because it was, you know, something they'd never seen before. I, and, and I guess, I don't know, maybe thought they thought that it would be a good thing to practice on him. But what I had learned from being in support groups and, and meeting other moms with children like this is that the worst thing you could do is let someone operate on your child who doesn't know what they're doing. Because with the lymphatic malformation, it you get one shot. And this is what I learned from my son's actual surgeon when we finally found someone, an expert when we finally found someone we trusted who was in another state completely, he was out in Boston and we had to travel to Boston Children's Hospital for all of his surgeries. But he was explaining that with this type of malformation, you know, he has to do microsurgery because it's so difficult to see the lymphatic tissue and discern. And I know from experience, it is very hard to tell lymphatic from fatty tissue. And once you get in there and operate on it, it and it scars down you can't go back in again. You're done. So if you are someone who doesn't know what you're looking at and you don't know what to do, then you could actually harm someone, which it's so sad because I met a young, um, a young boy who had a similar malformation to David and he was around four years old. David was a baby and his, he had been operated on his, he had, his mom had Medicaid. And so they had to go to the hospitals that would accept their insurance. And what happens that people don't understand with Medicaid is typically you're going to go to a hospital that's a teaching hospital. And that means that you're going to be practiced on by students, residents, which is something that we have to have, of course, student nurses, student doctors, student anesthetists, and respiratory therapists, we all have to learn somehow. But there are times when it is inappropriate for someone who is a novice to learn on someone else who has something very, diff very difficult. So for her son, he had been operated on by people who didn't know what they were doing. 
And he ended up with an arm that was so big, he couldn't even, he rested his arm on his head because it was so big and so heavy. And it was constantly wrapped because it was always oozing because his wounds wouldn't heal. Not long after I met them at a conference out in California, I um, was in communication with his mom and she told me that he ended up having to have his arm amputated. And I blame that on the healthcare system, on providers who were too arrogant to know their limitations. And so when I go into any kind of situation, when it comes to healthcare decision-making, it is so important that, that, that I get access to information from different sources from all over the globe. Because what one doctor may say is the standard of care is some other doctors, um, some other doctor will say is absolutely not the standard of care. And so I really want to be able to hear all of the evidence. I want to hear the debates. I want to be a part of the debates. And then I want to make an informed decision based on all of the information. Now, If you were to leave it up to, say, for instance, I was battling with my insurance company who didn't want me to go out of network. They wanted me to stay in network. And they figured there was someone in network who was an expert enough to be able to care for my son. Had I not pushed and pushed, and one day I'll tell you guys a story about how hard I had to push to finally get permission to take him out of network. But had I not done that, and I would have just trusted the source the resources that was given to me from the insurance company saying, okay, this is the expert. This is who you need to go see. Had I done that, my son probably wouldn't have an arm either. And that's why it is so important to have discourse in science and in every industry, because some people's experiences will vary how they treat something. And what one person has and the way that they respond to the treatment is going to be completely different than someone else. Healthcare has to be tailored for the individual. One of my concerns when I was going through the research and I was trying to figure out what my son had, because remember, it was always considered a tentative diagnosis. It was always, we think this is what it is. I actually sent his records and files to the NIH, the National National Institute of Health. I think that's who I sent it to. I'll, I'll try to remember. But anyway, one of these major government organizations that does a lot of research. And I sent it to, um, because my concern through my research online, I came across a lot of um, evidence about something else called Proteus syndrome. And there was, there was, a, there were several different conditions that I thought my son could have potentially fallen into. And Proteus was not the one I wanted him to have. Of course it is a devastating disease. And I was very worried. And whenever I would bring it up to the doctors, they would say, oh, no, 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 that's not it. And I'm like, but, but this is the criteria. And, and he has this and he has this and he has this. And according to the criteria, it says, if you have these many of this, you know, this, um, these symptoms, then you, you have Proteus. So tell me why you don't think he does. And they would just kind of rush through these appointments and they just did not listen. And even when you, when I would go back and look at his imaging reports and things, the signs pointed to something other than a lymphatic malformation, but that was just the label that they slapped on him. And that's what they continued on with. 
even when I sent his records off to, um, to this government agency that does all of the research, even they didn't think that he had Proteus, which when they said it, I finally relaxed like, okay, okay. He doesn't have that. Phew, I could breathe. Many years later, I um, had an uh, interventional radiologist who was taking care of David and he was having a procedure done because he was having a lot of swelling. And, and when we had moved here to Texas, we needed to find new providers. So anyway, his doctor gave us a list of who he trusted to take care of David. And we went to see them. And so they ordered a, a test for David to have. And anyway, he had to go and have an interventional radiology procedure where they're looking under imaging. And then if they need to, they can um, perform some invasive procedures under imaging. Well, it just so happened that the radiologist was an expert in um, vascular anomalies, which is what David has, because she herself had a vascular anomaly or has a vascular anomaly. So she was very familiar with that area. Obviously, she's got a vested interest in making sure to stay up to date on what's going on. And when she saw David, she said, yeah, I think he does have Proteus. Now, I can't even tell you how many doctors I saw. I always questioned them and asked them what they thought. And they always told me that they didn't think it was that. But I finally came across someone who actually had a vested interest in knowing about the disease process, which is rare, who was able to give me a different diagnosis, which we then used to do further testing. This is many years after he had been born and, and more research had come out and more things had changed around this. And so they were able to do, so they no longer call it Proteus syndrome. Um, they have a new term for it. And um, what they had to do was a biopsy of his tissue to determine the actual uh, genetic sequencing that may be causing his malformation. So if they were to find a specific malformation, what they call it is a PIK3CA um, change. So if they found that, then that's what they would label it as. Um, and they had a treatment that they could try. It was, a, it was a study, a trial that he could get enrolled in, but only if he had that PIK3CA mutation. So we had the test done. It was a lot of long time between the time where we first heard about this potential drug treatment therapy and then um, finding out, you know, whether he would be able to have the procedure done, scheduling the procedure, finally getting, I mean, it was months and months and months before we even got that scheduled because it felt like his doctor just kept forgetting about him. So we finally had that procedure. We finally got a diagnosis. And yes, he had a PIK3CA mutation. And there was this trial that he was able to, to get enrolled in for a drug that they originally were using for patients who had breast cancer. And they started using it for people with this mutation because it had a similar mechanism of action where these cells were basically um, growing without turning off. Like they didn't have that off switch. And so by giving them, giving them this drug, they could turn that switch off and maybe it would decrease the size of the malformation and also, well, or at least hopefully stabilize it. So long story, 
I know. But I said all that to say that had there been censorship around this medical information the way that there is now, how would I have found the answers? How would I have found the doctors? How would I have found the specialists? How would I have learned about the disease that my son has if it wasn't just open and free for me to learn? I mean, there's just, there's so much we don't know in healthcare and in science. And it's a field that will always be growing and gaining in information. The last thing we need is more censorship. What we need to do is educate people. We need to teach people the language of healthcare, the language of science, teach people how they can be more discerning, how they can tell whether or not a study has been designed appropriately, how to tell if the study even, um, if the study outcome was what it was initially intended to be. If you don't teach us, we won't know. And then, yes, we will just take information from any old regular person who puts something out on the internet. And if it's if it's painted, powder, you know, last week I said my dad's quote was little powder and a little paint will make it look like what it ain't. Well, you can create a beautiful website and it looks official. Then, yeah, a lot of people will fall for the information, which, I mean, if you look at things like FTX and what's happening with that, um, lots of companies put out uh, information, they, they package it really, really well, and we fall for it because we just don't have the time to dig in and do the research and to determine if every single source is credible and reliable. But at the same time, you have to respect us and our uh, individual autonomy and our rights as a human to make those mistakes and to learn from those mistakes. That's how we grow. We don't need you to hold our hands like a parent. We are not children. We have to learn and we fall, we scrape our knee and we get back up and we keep going. I originally was one who believed wholeheartedly in whatever the doctor said. I was trained up in the medical establishment. So I understand. And and when I first came out, I remember being very much like, you got to do this. You got to do what the doctor says. And these are all the things that we know because it's all backed by evidence. And my parents, you know, they were very patient with me and they didn't have the same viewpoint that I did. My dad was more about holistic naturopathic medicine. And, and he challenged what the healthcare authority said. And we would have debates and my dad is so easygoing. So it was never like a heated debate or anything like that. And he would let me win these arguments, but Looking back on it, the things that my dad taught me that were not pharmaceutical driven, but that were naturally driven were the things that I used to heal my son when the pharmaceuticals couldn't help him, when the doctors couldn't help him. And that's how I was introduced to the fact that, you know, the, the medicine that we need is actually in our food. It's actually in nature. I had to learn that the hard way. I had to have, you know, direct impact. I had to experience it for myself to know that that pharmaceuticals and chemists and scientists do not have all the answers because they're not God. I had to have faith in God that he designed our bodies and created us in such a way that we could have the ability to heal ourselves 
if we gave our bodies the resources that it needed. There's, there's so much to this. Um, there's so much more even to that story, and I'll share more with you in time. But I just wanted to say that for, for people listening, you do not have to be an expert. You do not have to have formal clinical training in order to be able to advocate for yourself, in order to be able to take care of yourself and protect your family and those that you love. So one of the things that I learned from reading this book called Blink is to trust your instincts, trust your gut. Within the first few seconds, we typically have a reaction. It's a visceral reaction. We can't put words to it, but we'll notice something changes. You know, either we'll get goosebumps or we'll get cold or our our palms will start sweating. Something happens to us when we encounter different situations. Later on, we might be able to put words to it, but but our brain actually is able to process far quicker. There's a segment in our brain that processes information far quicker than we realize. That's where our intuition comes into play. I want people to really, really start to pay attention to that intuition because that is what's going to protect you when you get into a situation where, say you meet or you get information from a provider that you, you can't put your words to it. You can't, figure exact, you can't figure out why it's not sitting well with you, but you know that you don't feel at ease. That's your gut telling you something's wrong. Because what happens is your brain is able to process all of these mathematical equations, these subtle changes that your body may notice, that your eyes may notice, that you, may, you might smell something, you might hear something, you might notice a slight change in uh, a person's facial expression. Something is going to tip you off that something's not right and you need to act or, or do something different to protect yourself. I want to just read a little bit of some summaries that I had written down about it because, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a good book. But anyway, it's by Malcolm Gladwell, and it's titled um, Blink, The Power of Thinking Without Thinking. Came out back in 2005. And what I learned is what stuck with me through the years. So our brain uses two different strategies to make sense of a situation. The first is the conscience, conscious strategy. We think about what we've learned and eventually come up with an answer. It's logical and definitive. It takes us longer to come to an answer because it's slower and it needs a lot of information. But there's a second strategy that operates a lot more quickly. It picks up the problem almost immediately, but it has its drawbacks. It operates, at least at first, entirely below the surface of consciousness. It sends its messages through indirect channels, such as the sweat glands in the palms of our hands. It's a system in which our brain reaches conclusions without immediately telling us that it's reaching conclusions. Some part of the brain does a series of calculations, and before any conscious thought takes place, you have reaction. You have intuitiveness. You don't know why you know, but you know. The part of our brain that leaps to conclusions like this is called the adaptive unconscious. It's like a quiet computer that quickly processes a lot of the data we need to function as human beings. We as humans have survived as long as we have by relying on a segment within our brain that is able to make very quick judgments with very little information. 
we are innately suspicious of this kind of rapid cognition because we live in a world that assumes the quality of a decision is directly related to the time and energy that went into making it. This book, it goes on to explain why we ignore our intuition to our own detriment, what biases we hold that blind us to what our unconscious knows to be true. And I really, really encourage you to go on and read it because there's a story that he talks about. There's a few, there's several stories actually that he talks about in this uh, book that really, really point to what's going on right now with this whole situation that we just dealt with, with COVID. And it talks about how there are psychological studies that they've done um, where they introduce certain words and you don't even realize that they're being introduced and it's a form of priming to get you to behave in a certain way. I mean, these are actual psychological studies. I, I, and it's funny because when he, when I was reading the book again and I listened to that, I thought, wow, these words that we keep hearing, for instance, when I was doing the, this, this original show was actually going to be about um, how to evaluate research, medical research how to understand the difference between absolute risk reduction and relative risk re- risk reduction. I really wanted to dig into that because I want the general public to be able to read scientific data and to make conclusions, draw conclusions that they can then use to challenge or to support recommendations that are being made. Like I'm all about empowering people with the same knowledge that we have so that we can all speak the same language on the same level. So anyway, when I was um, reading that whole YouTube um, warning, I don't know, we this new YouTube label, and then I was thinking about the things that were said in these videos, I decided, okay, let me look into this company. Like, who, who is this person? Who's this content creator of this video that I'm watching? And I'll, and I'll provide a link to uh, this video series because I still think that you should watch it if you're interested in learning more about medical research and how to read and understand research studies. I think they did a very good job of explaining it, but I want you to really think about it from, um, I want you to evaluate what's being said from multiple standpoints. Yes, I want you to understand the concepts being taught, but I also want you to think about the purpose behind it. Because what hit me, my instincts, my gut, was why are they making such a simple, intuitive, what you would think would be a simple and intuitive process, so complex, so confusing, and so difficult. We often find ourselves making snap decisions and judgments based on evaluations that we've made visually. We see things like, for instance, what happened during COVID. We saw things with our own eyes, and we were were able to make judgments on how we were going to move forward based on our observations. Now we could take those observations and put them into words and break them down into data and then use that data to explain why we made the decisions that we made. That would take forever. That would take a very, very long time. Or we could just say, you know what? Something's just not sitting right with me. I'm going to go this way instead. Either way, you would have come to the same conclusion which is this isn't for me because you, you're seeing something that's not right. 
And so what I noticed when I was watching this video was they're making something very complex and complicated, or they're making something into a very complex and complicated situation that doesn't need to be. Why would they do that? Well, one thing that the, um, the lady talked about was to make sure that you're getting the information from trusted sources. And I was like, ooh, trusted sources. That's a word that's been going around a lot. Now, this video series was made six years ago, and it came from one of the leading health authorities in Canada, one of six that disseminates health public policy information. And so some of the key words that stood out to me when she was doing her lecture series was trusted sources. She talked about using the data to guide public health decision-making. She talked about vaccines. She talked about the elderly population and protecting the elderly. She talked about um, sexuality, preventing um, teens from pregnant, getting pregnant. I mean, these are just all these issues that I'm like, wow, these are the same things we're talking about right now, but on a different level. And it's almost like these are words that have been put out there because they've been priming us so that we will move and behave in a certain way, in a certain direction, in a certain manner. I don't know about you, but I don't like people manipulating me and trying to get me to do something against my will. So my eyes are very in tune and very watchful of everything that's being said and everything that's going around. And I'm just, I'm ready to start something new. And I hope you are too. And we all together are going to learn and we are going to create a completely separate system that we can go to because I just don't feel like our current healthcare system is trustworthy. And I'm sure you guys have some of the same feelings and beliefs, which is why you're listening to Nurses Out Loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. I really appreciate you taking the time, giving me your time and listening to the show. Just as a reminder, we do um, have different nurses who talk Monday through Friday. So please, please, please take take the time to listen in and to send us an email and talk to us and let us know what's going on in your neck of the woods. And just remember that the whole point of this is that we really, truly want to shine a light in the darkness. It's time and 